Thank you, Donna and Pat, for that. I'm grateful uh, as we are working our way through this sermon series, What the Bible is All About, for your feedback and your encouragement and your questions. And uh, it's, it's good to see the congregation engaged as we, as we share this uh, amazing journey. And in just a few moments, I'm going to be reading from Numbers chapters 13 and 14. And I'll invite you to have your Bibles open as we continue our journey through uh, just a discovery and a recap of the great story of God and where we fit in that. Uh, before I do that, I want to uh, lead us in a time of prayer and uh, invite us to a time of quiet, time of meditation and centering and presence in the presence of the Holy God. Search our hearts and our minds, O Lord, and our motives and our thoughts. Purify us as we confess our sin and acknowledge our need before you, that we might be cleansed in the power of Jesus Christ's shed blood, that we might experience that freedom and joy of pardon and cleansing, that we might be open to a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit, for every challenge that is being faced by this congregation this week. May there be the sense of your presence and your strength to fortify, comfort the grieving, strengthen the weak, bless the broken, heal the sick, bless those with physical and mental and emotional illness and pain that seems to never go away. Bless families in distress. Bless those who are homeless in our community and in need of, of our care. We pray today for our military personnel that you'll keep them safe and bless them. And in a world that is so, so desperately in need of peace, would you work in your supernatural way among the leaders of nations? We pray for Ukraine that there might be peace. We pray for our partner church and our church-planting pastor, that you will keep him and his church and his family safe. We pray for the crisis in northern Iraq, for those displaced and hungry and thirsty people who are suffering, that that suffering might be alleviated. And as the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks draws near, we pray that you will help us as a nation to re always remember that our only security is in you, that we might trust you deeply, that we might be the people you've called us to be. Oh God, we thank you for the testimony of Holy Scripture and for the way you invite us to be uh, entering into it, to be a part of it. Help us to live that drama this morning, that our hearts will be open to the truth that you have, that together we might pray and mean that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm going to read from Numbers chapter 13, 
I'm going to read verses uh, 25 through 31, and then the next chapter, 14, Numbers 14, 26 through 30, and uh, sort of uh, thread together this story that is before us this morning about the wanderings of the people of God. I invite you to stand if you're able, and I'll read the scripture aloud. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the Israelites in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Yet the people who live in the land are strong, and the towns are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the land of the Negev. The Hittites and Jebusites and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone with him said, We are not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we. And then to chapter 14, verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation complain against me? I have heard the complaints of the Israelites, which they complain against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. Your dead bodies will fall in this very wilderness, and of all your number included in the census, from twenty years old and upward, who have complained against me, not one of you shall come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. The word of the Lord, may he bless it. You may be seated. There once was a city bus driver. He worked 40 years for the same company, driving the bus in the same city. And at his retirement dinner, he was giving a farewell speech, and he was musing as he spoke and said, uh, they did the math, and in my 40 years of driving a bus, I've driven 100,000 miles, but I've never been outside the city limits. I just go round and round and round. And maybe that's a description of, for some of us, of our spiritual lives. And I think for some congregations, and for some people groups, it can be a wandering around and around and around. It is sort of the biography of the people of God, the Israelites. I want to show you a map and uh, show you what I'm talking about. Uh, this is a map of the Sinai Peninsula. It was in the news uh, since the June 67 war uh, in Israel. It's been in the news ever since. It's a part of, uh, of that connection of Egypt. It's that V-shaped region that is the Sinai Peninsula. And if you, if you think about it as a giant check mark, that's, that's that whole region. And the upper handle of the check mark uh, on the Mediterranean, the blue coast there, that's Canaan or the Holy Land or Palestine. But down in the, in the V of that, 
That's where the people of God were, and that's where they wandered for 40 years. Now, here's how the story went, and here's why they wandered. Sort of rewinding the last couple of weeks' sermons, you remember that Abraham was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, and Jacob had the 12 children, one of whom was Joseph. Joseph went down and became prime minister of Egypt in a time of famine. His family joined him, and all the Israelites lived there. They began to multiply. The Egyptians became very suspicious and fearful at the large numbers, and so the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites and did forced labor with them. And then God, last Sunday sermon, leveraged the people of God out of Egyptian bondage, out of slavery. He liberated them. And now they have been set free from Egypt over in the west, and they have moved into that Sinai Peninsula. They have moved into that region that is that huge bee, and there they are. Now, in order to have a plan to take the land that God has promised, which is that upper handle of that check mark. Uh, they sent spies up to check out the land, and the spies came back. And ten spies came back and said, hey, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's, it's awesome. But, oh, there are giants in the land. We, we can't do it. We can't take it. Only Jacob, I'm sorry, only Joshua and Caleb said, we can do this. We can take that land. Uh, we, we have more than enough strength to do that, but there was that majority report. And, and it, here's how it all just sort of played out. The majority report saw obstacles larger than God. The minority report saw God larger than the obstacles. And that's a summary of the, of the whole tension in the camp. Now, in chapter 14 of Numbers, I read to you a few moments ago, uh, is God's decision of how that's going to be handled. God says to the people of God uh, through his leader, he says, you know, I've, I've had it with this doubting and this complaining. All of the people of Israel are going to wander in that wilderness. And wilderness, by the way, does not mean uh, thicket and jungle, uh, it is desert, it's barren, it's wasteland, it's rugged. All of the people of God are going to wander in that, in that wilderness, that Sinai Peninsula V triangle, for 40 years. The only people who are going to get out of it of that age, the only people who are going to go into the land are Joshua and Caleb because they trusted me, they believed me. I didn't know this till I was preparing for this sermon this week, I don't know how I missed this and all the seminary courses and all the years of study. In our, in our Bible, this book of the Bible is called Numbers. I knew that. It's based on the census that is taken, more than one census in the book of Numbers. But what I didn't know was that in the Hebrew Bible, you know what this book of the Bible is called? It's called In the Wilderness. That's the name of the book of the Bible. It would have been interesting this morning if I'd said, turn in your Bibles to the book of In the Wilderness, chapter 13, and in the wilderness, chapter 14, but that's exactly what God wants us to understand and focus on as we see and hear this story. Now, I have to pause here and just sort of uh, do an inventory because we all, when we read Bible stories, tend to get a little smug 
and we start to scoff at these poor, ignorant, ancient people who failed to trust God. We look down our noses at them as if we have moral superiority and we say, God had just led them out of Egyptian captivity and here they were in a new crisis and they would not trust God, the God who'd already done that awesome deed of deliverance, they wouldn't trust God for a new challenge. Well, look in the mirror. That's what we all do, isn't it? We're okay with what God did in the past, but we just don't believe that His power is up to date to do anything new. And so this morning is a good time for us to ask a question. What does it mean for the people of God to forfeit the inheritance we have in Jesus Christ? What does it mean when we simply fail to claim that which God has provided for us? When God says the blessings are here and waiting, what does it mean for us that we simply fail to step out to trust and to claim and to appropriate that which God has for us? It's worth thinking about. One of the, one of the poems, one of the couplets that I learned as a boy growing up, my mom loved to teach us poetry, uh, that poem by John Greenleaf Whittier, of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. That's Israel. That's us. Of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. It might have been if we had stepped out and claimed what God had for us. And I don't know if you caught it in the Numbers 14 reading, but God basically says, you know, my judgment on you for failing to trust me, my punishment to you for failing to trust me is that I'm going to give you exactly what you want. You want a life without me guiding you? You want a life without me interfering and calling the shots? That's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to let you have your way. That's my punishment. And so you can just wander around in that wilderness for 40 years. That's God's judgment on us often. That He gives us what we ask for, which is no interference from God, and He leaves us to ourselves, the worst punishment of all. And when the people of God said no to God, you'd have to read all of the chapters but there was a joy that went out of their lives. There was, there was a certain romance to this great deliverance from Egypt, and it just died. There was a joy that went out of their lives. There was a power that went out of their lives. There was a freshness that went out of their lives when they said no to God. And that happens to us too. We forfeit something. There's, there's this power and joy that, that isn't there anymore. So all of this begs the question, is there a difference between journeying and wandering? There is, isn't there? There's a difference between journeying and wandering. Journeying has a purpose. Journeying has a goal, has a direction, it has a destination. But wandering is just wandering. You're not going anywhere. 
just going around and around and around. So, as we examine this scripture, I wanted us to think together this morning for just a few moments about how to know when you're wandering instead of journeying. Would you like to know that? Would you like help to know when spiritually, as a congregation or as an individual, as a group, when you stopped journeying and started wandering? And we're going to leave those on the board, for, uh, on the screen for a little while so you don't have to write really fast if you like to take notes. I think they'll be up there a little while. But one of the ways we know we're wandering instead of journeying is that we keep circling back to the same old landmarks. Have you ever been lost in the woods? And you very macho, confidently say, oh, I think it's this way. And then about 20 minutes later, you come past the same tree stump that you went by just a little while ago and say, hmm, looks familiar. Same thing with life. You know, we keep having the same problems. We keep bumping the same wall. We go round and round and round. We keep seeing the same landmarks and keep, keep experiencing the same failures without making any progress. Uh, Arrested Development may have been a TV series, but Arrested Development is a definition of how we are spiritually sometimes. We just get to a certain place spiritually, and we stop growing. We get to a certain place with the Lord, and we're so afraid of what's next, we just go round and round and round. And when we get in that mindset, what happens is, Instead of growing and learning from our mistakes, we start hiding and blaming. You ever do that? Instead of learning and growing from our mistakes, we start blaming and hiding. And instead of being open to God's more, the more that's out there, we spend all of our energy defending decisions we've already made. There's more out there, but, but rather than be open to that, we'd rather spend our energy defending things we've already done. And so, one of the ways to know that we're wandering and not journeying is that we keep circling back to the same old landmarks. The second way to know that we're wandering instead of journeying is that we succumb to groupthink. Groupthink. Peer pressure. Uh, Young people are subjected to an enormous amount of peer pressure. It was true when we were young, but it's amazingly more intense today, I believe. And we need to pray for our youth because it's enormous. But youth aren't the only ones who struggle with peer pressure, the group thing. You know, you read in in, uh, Numbers 13 and 14, first it was the 10 who said, we can't take that land, and then it kind of became contagious. The scripture says in chapter 14, at the beginning of that chapter, all of Israel began to say, oh, I don't think we can take that land. A kind of mob mentality started circling and swirling among them, where people just started parroting what they heard from someone else. This is why we need Bible study and a personal relationship with the Lord. This is why we need uh, small group Sunday school classes and corporate worship and and a prayer time to build our own walk with the Lord because we have to learn to think independently. We have to have the courage to gently, lovingly, but firmly push back when we sense that that someone else is going the wrong direction and to have the courage to stand the way God wants us to stand and not always succumb to groupthink because when we do succumb to groupthink, we just start wandering around with the herd, wandering around with the herd. 
The third way to know that we're wandering instead of journeying is that we're spending all of our time looking backward instead of looking forward. It happened again in the 14th chapter of Numbers. We didn't read all of that passage for the sake of time, but in Numbers 14, the Israelites said something they said over and over again after Moses led them out of Egypt. That every time they had hard, every time they had a difficulty, they said, oh, I just wish we were back in Egypt. Those were the good old days. You know, when we got whipped and beaten and we eked out a living and were treated like animals, those were the good old days. I just wish we were back in Egypt, always looking backward, never looking forward. J. Sidlow Baxter uh, wrote a Bible commentary years ago, uh, and he said that by many scholars' estimation, when Moses led Israel out of Egypt, the great Exodus story, he said, you know, maybe it took uh, 40 hours, uh, maybe the whole, the whole process, you know, maybe longer, scholars don't really know. But J. Sidlow Baxter makes this point. He says, it only took 40 hours to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel, to get that Egyptian bondage out of their system. It took 40 years. And here's a pop quiz for you. Do you know why in the vehicle you drive the front windshield is larger than the rearview mirror? Because where we're going is always more important than where we've been. Where we're going is always more important than where we've been. And if you drive always looking in the rearview mirror, guess what's going to happen? You're ahead of me, aren't you? And the fourth way to know that we're wandering instead of journeying is that our focus is negative and fear-based. Oh, there are giants. Oh, there are problems. Yeah, there's a lot of blessings. There's a lot of food there. Land flowing with milk and honey. Yeah, God led us out of Egypt, but negative and fear-based negative and fear-based. Why is it we think that the God of the Exodus and the God of the resurrection is limited by what we define as possible? Where does Scripture ever say that God is limited by human definitions of possible? Eugene Peterson, who wrote the translation of the message that so many of us enjoy, um, has traveled to the Holy Land, and he has walked the Negev, the desert region which is just beneath the Red Sea, you know, on that, that, that handle of the check mark, you see that bluish Dead Sea. Well, just below there is a region called the Negev. Uh, and uh, Eugene Peterson has walked that region he says it's dry and barren. Uh, there are no mountains, no rivers, no green, lush uh, forests. He said it's hot, it's dusty, and it's miserable. He walked it for five days because he wanted to get a feel of what it was like wandering or journeying. For five days he walked out in that heat and in that dust and in that barrenness. And he said during the walk, one of the guides said to him, 
you don't get this, and by get he means you don't get this, you don't get this region by taking a picture. You don't get this region by telling people about it. He said, you do this yourself, and you do it with your feet. There's no substitute, the guide said. You do it yourself, and you do it with your feet. And to move, to switch from wandering to journeying, we have to come to the place of understanding You don't do this by coming to Sunday school once a week and taking a snapshot of the Christian life or by coming to worship once in a while and hearing a story about a barren wasteland. You make the Christian journey by doing it with your feet, one foot in front of the other, obeying Jesus every step of the way. Now, we like to talk about how knowing Jesus gives us peace, and I, and I grant that. Knowing Jesus brings forgiveness. I love that. Knowing Jesus brings new life and transformation and eternal hope. I love all those things. We talk about that a lot, but what we don't talk about enough is that how knowing Jesus gives us courage. Knowing Jesus gives us courage to walk the Negev, to walk the barren wilderness in a purposeful way. Knowing Jesus gives us courage to step out, to get after it, to get on the way, and to stop wandering and start journeying. Let's pray together.